I'd like to read uh, this afternoon in the Epistle to the Philippians in chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 and we'll start at verse 1. consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Trust that God would bless his word and give help in considering this this uh, portion of the scriptures. <clears throat> I think it's lovely to see how the apostle starts out with not an if of doubt, but it's an if of conviction. We often use the word if this way. Uh, Some have called this a list of the blessings or the, the compassion that are found in the Lord Jesus Christ. A Paul almost starts off as though he's going to keep on going because certainly the riches of compassion that are in the Lord Jesus for his people are unending. There's no way that we could count them up. You remember how the the psalmist could say that the blessings that he had experienced from God were more than he could number. And I can't help but wonder if the Apostle Paul had a, a similar thought in this, passion, in this uh, portion. He starts out with consolation in Christ. The word that's translated consolation is related to the word that the Lord Jesus used about the Holy Spirit. 
when he promised in the gospel according to John that he would speak to the Father and the Father would send another comforter. The word that word comfort or or another consolation. It literally means one who draws near, one who comes near and is a help. And that's the idea here. Remember that it was not just a comforter, but it was another comforter that the Lord Jesus promised, which leads us to understand that He Himself was the comforter. Think of how He dealt with His disciples when they had troubled hearts. If we were to go back to John chapter 14, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. He gave to his disciples consolation for their troubled hearts. He showed that he was the one who could comfort, who could console them. And when he did that, he made a full provision for everything that could trouble them. He does the same for you and me. So, The Apostle says, in effect, is there consolation in Christ? And if there is, then this is how we should behave. He goes on to mention any comfort of love. The Apostle had written of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ for himself in that portion in Galatians chapter 2 that, God willing, we'll be reading on Thursday evening and he speaks there of the life that I now live in the flesh I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me it's a wonderful thing to know that the Lord Jesus loves all his people it's a wonderful thing for a sinner if he or she can grasp it to Know the truth of John 3.16, For God so loved the world. But the Apostle Paul in that passage was meditating and rejoicing in the fact of the Lord Jesus, that the Lord Jesus loved him individually. Each one who is saved by the grace of God can rejoice in that. And what a comfort it is to know that love and to be able to rest in it. He gave himself for me. Each one of us has the benefit of the full value of the work of the Lord Jesus and the fullness of his love that he showed when he laid down his life on Calvary. He he didn't give a part of himself as if 
uh, one part of the work that he did was for me and another part was for Brother Ken and another part for uh, our sister, Sister Keda. The full value of the salvation that the Lord Jesus wrought on Calvary because of his love for us is ours. Each one of us has the full value of that salvation. He didn't give a part of himself. He gave himself. And he gave himself for me. Each one of us can rejoice in that. That we have a full salvation. Remember what the old, even the Old Testament saints had an appreciation of the goodness and the love of God for them. Psalm 103 Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfieth thy mouth with good things, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. There was a man, the psalm was written by David, A man who could rejoice in God's salvation and appreciate the fullness of it. That it took in every one of his needs and he could rejoice in in it and we can rejoice in the salvation that God has. What a comfort there is in the love of the Lord Jesus for us. A number of years ago, a sister in Christ was in the hospital following surgery. And a Catholic priest came into the room and looked around. Apparently he was expecting to find someone else. And he realized that he had the wrong room. The person had been moved. But he asked his sister if he could say a blessing. She answered him, I have been blessed with God's great salvation and I'm resting in his love well the priest understood that he couldn't add anything to that and so he went his way but there is one who was able to rest in the love of God for her and you and I can have experiences like that no doubt many of us have so we have a comfort of love and again that's in Christ in Christ who loved us who loved the church the love of God who loved the world and gave his son but then there's also in this first verse there's fellowship of the spirit now if it hadn't been for the work of Christ and the fellowship of the spirit I probably would never have known many of you Um, possibly I could have met you but I wouldn't have known you as I do I wouldn't pray for you as I do apart from the fellowship the work of the Holy Spirit and he makes that fellowship to he starts it and he makes it to grow He makes it to grow so that we have an interest and a concern one for another. Remember remember the words 
of the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. He says, That which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So that fellowship of the Spirit is another one, another of the riches of the blessings that are in the Lord Jesus Christ. So many ways there's that the last one is the bowels and mercies, the full depth of His feelings for us. Uh, I think that's seen that's seen throughout the New Testament, of course. But I think that's a simply a continuation, an expansion, maybe, of the love that he had for his ancient people, the people that he still loves, and he still would call to himself by the gospel. So the apostle. The Apostle says, if we have these things, consolation in Christ, comfort of love, fellowship with the Spirit, the affections and sympathies, he says, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, that ye think that way about one another, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. If those things are seen amongst in the people of God, one to another, Paul says that would fill up his joy. His desire, of course, when he first came to Philippi was to see souls saved. And then the assembly was formed and his desire was to see that the assembly might grow, that it might be a testimony for the Lord Jesus and that the believers might be knit together with His care one for another. The Apostle has spoken in the first chapter about joy. In verse 4 he spoke of the joy that he had in prayer for the saints in Philippi. In verse 18 he spoke of the joy that he had in the knowing that the gospel was going forth. In verse 25, he, he said that he was confident that he would remain in the body for the joy of faith of the Philippians. And then that they would rejoice when he came to, him, to see them in uh, verse 26. And he finally says, ask calls on them to be Christ-like. To show love one to another, as the Lord Jesus did. To be together in the oneness of mind. The same love. The one soulness, the same mind, even as the Lord Jesus showed toward his disciples. His humbling and quarreling and selfish disciples. But they were his. They were his and he loved them. And... I'm not going to speak for any of you, but I can speak for myself. Fumbling, quarreling, and selfish is not a bad description of me. And yet, the wonder of it is that the Lord Jesus loves me. The Lord Jesus loves his people. And we can put up 
with their failures and with their frailties, with their infirmities, because we know that we have the same problem as they do. And when you think about that, maybe it's not surprising, or maybe it is. Verse 3, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. It's amazing, isn't it, that the way we are built, or possibly the way that sin has made us, that right in the middle of thinking of those things, the oneness of mind, the mutual love one for another, that all of a sudden the apostle brings in strife. He brings in vain glory. Just see how wonderfully I show love to the saints. And I get proud of that. I'm, I'm doing really pretty good on how much I love God's people. I display compassion to other believers better than you do. We're comparing ourselves with one another. We're not comparing ourselves with the Lord Jesus. And that's why he says, don't let strife and vainglory enter into your relationships with one another. And the fact that the Apostle brings in those things, I think, shows that he understood what the heart of men and women were like. And that's probably because he had find that same things in his own heart. How different from the Lord Jesus. He could say, and he could say it without contradiction, Matthew eleven twenty nine. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. If I were to stand up here and say to you, I am meek and lowly of heart, you'd probably, well, I don't know if you'd laugh me off the platform, but you'd certainly at least snicker behind your hand. But when the Lord Jesus says, I am meek and lowly in heart, we say amen. We know him. He can say, he can say that without, any, without false pride. We don't mock that. And the Apostle Paul is telling us, take a page from the Lord Jesus' book. Let each esteem other better than themselves. Or, or from Romans chapter 12, be not high-minded, but condescend to men of low estate. And the next, excuse me, the next verse says, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Avoid self-centeredness. We're so accustomed to taking care of number one that sometimes we forget that number two, three, four, five, and six, however far you want to count, that they need concern too. Take care about others' concerns. Be interested in other people. Don't forget your own things. You can't neglect yourself. But take um, take concern, a genuine interest in uh, in the uh, in other believers without being nosy. 
That's important. Remember what the book of Proverbs tells us. Better is a neighbor that's near than a brother far off. A nearby neighbor. A genuine neighbor. Remember the man who asked the Lord Jesus, Who is my neighbor? And the Lord Jesus in response told the parable of the Good Samaritan, as we call it. Someone has said, what the Lord Jesus was telling the man was not, who can I look around for and say, who, who's my neighbor so I can be kind to him or her? The answer is, where is someone that I can be a neighbor for? The Samaritan passing by saw a man who was in need. He didn't know the man, probably never met him in his life. But he saw he had a need, and he helped him. And that's the kind of attitude that we should have one for another. And the, the reality or the unreality of the interest we take in one another will quickly be apparent to each other. So remember, there's the other side of that coin. I mentioned better as a neighbor that's near than a brother far off. The, book of Proverbs also says, Withdraw thy foot from thy neighbor's house, lest he be weary of thee, and so hate thee. So there's, there's the balance. It's wonderful, you know, in the Scriptures how the truths of Scripture have a balance. There's always a balance for them. And we need to learn the balances. We tend to be creatures of extremes. We go to one, all the way to one side or all the way to the other side. And the Lord Jesus would have us, the Apostle Paul is encouraging us to be balanced. And then he brings it down, verse 5. Let this mind be in you. This is a mindset. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The Lord Jesus is the perfect standard, perfect example, and the divine standard. Remember, this comes after the phrase in verse 3, lowliness of mind. <clears throat> so the apostle is interested in the saints exhibiting humility as the Lord Jesus did. And the verses that follow, I think it's a wonderful thing that where the apostle is exhorting the saints to humility, to love one for another, to care and concern for other believers. He brings in this, one of the great Christological passages in the New Testament, telling of what the Lord Jesus was and is, and what He did, what His mind was, what His mindset was. Verses 6 through 8 present to us the mind of Christ. Verse 6, Who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Even in his pre-incarnate existence, before he ever came into the world, this was the mind of the Lord Jesus. He considered, he thought, of the step, if we can call it that, the step he was about to take. That he was to come into the world. And 
the form of God that was his is simply a plain declaration of his deity. No semi-gods and demigods as the nations had, but he was God in every sense of the word. Everything that was true of God was and is true of him. But he didn't consider that something to be latched onto and held tenaciously. He didn't look at that as a treasure to hold on to. Although existing as God, he did not think of that as something to be grasped. But verse 7 says, But he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. He made himself of no reputation. <clears throat> the Greek word that's used there can be could could be translated that he emptied himself, and some have been have taken that to mean that he laid aside the attributes of deity, <clears throat> or he, in effect, ceased being God while he was here in the world. That's not the case. That would be a very serious error. What is being taught here is, I suspect, given to us possibly from the words that we read in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 about the Lord Jesus, that he was the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person. He was full deity. And he was the brightness of the glory of God, but he veiled or laid aside that brightness. You may have seen uh, some of the old pictures of the Lord Jesus and he's got a halo around his head. So you say, oh, the one with the halo. That's, that's the important one. He didn't have a halo. He veiled the glory that was his. The brightness of the glory of God. He became a servant a servant angels but angels are servants remember that angels are servants who are sent to minister to those who shall be heirs of salvation according to the epistle to the Hebrews but this, by the spirit by the spirit of God Paul adds this he became in the likeness or was made in the likeness of men and that is to exclude another serious error. There are, have been people who have taught that the Lord Jesus only appeared to be a man. He just looked like a man, but he wasn't really. That's also a, a serious error. Everything that was true of man was true of Christ incarnate, except sin. He appeared as a man. He started out as an infant, a dependent infant. And he developed in a completely natural way as millions have before and have since. There's a lovely quotation that I've taken from a book written by John G. Bellet entitled 
a brief meditation on the moral glory of the Lord Jesus. And he says this, It has been said of the Lord, His humanity was perfectly natural in its development. This is very beautiful and true. Luke 2.52 would verify this. There was nothing of unnatural progress in him. All was orderly increase. His wisdom kept pace with his stature or age. He was the child first, and then the man. By and by, as a man, God's man in the world, he will testify of the world that its works are evil and be hated by it. But as a child, a child after God's heart, as I may say, he will be subject to his parents and under the law and as one perfect. In such conditions, he grew in favor with God and man. I love that as a picture, a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus. And an excellent illustration of that verse that was referred to. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. And being found in fashion as a man, verse 8, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He appeared as a man. That's what he looked like. His behavior was that of a man. He humbled himself. If he had not humbled himself, no one could have humbled him. But he humbled himself, and in that humility he became obedient unto death. It was complete obedience. He didn't die from natural causes, rather it was the death of the cross. The one who was equal with God brought himself to this, the very lowest of deaths. The Roman politician and orator Marcus Tullius Cicero wrote, Let the very mention of the cross be far removed, not only from a Roman citizen's body, but from his mind, his eyes, and his ears. The cross was not to be mentioned in what is called polite society. The death of the Lord Jesus was not polite in any sense of the word. Rather, it was it has been described by a man who was the moderator of the Church of Scotland. And he said in part, Jesus was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves, on a town garbage heap, at a crossroad of politics so cosmopolitan they had to write his title in Hebrew and Latin and Greek, and the kind of place where cynics talk smut and thieves curse and soldiers gamble. That's where he died. No wonder the apostle says, even the death of the cross. That's the kind of place it was. That's the kind of place that our Lord Jesus Christ came to. Being in the form of God, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. 
And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Verses 9 through 11 give us the mind of God. We've already seen the mind of Christ. Verses 9 through 11 give us the mind of God in view of the mind of Christ. And what was the mind of God? The exaltation of Christ, the name of Christ, the honor of Christ, and the acclamation of Christ. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Don't miss that wherefore. It was because of his the mind that he exhibited in all that he did, even to the death of the cross. That is why God has highly exalted him. What the Lord Jesus did was voluntary and unconstrained. Remember what he said? John 10, 17 and 18. Therefore doth my Father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. And because he had laid down his life, God did highly exalt him. He's been raised to the very highest place in heaven. And God gave him a name that's above every name. We might ask, what was the nature of that exaltation? What does he have in heaven now that he didn't have before? And I think we could say his humanity. He took humanity back to heaven. And there was an exalted man in heaven. That's the exaltation to which God has raised him. And how about the name? The name that is above every name. Maybe that's the same thing. The human name. The name that was given to him by Joseph and Mary at the command of God. There's a hymn in our hymn books. I don't know that I've ever heard it sung. It was number 397 in the Believer's Hymn Book. And there are two verses of it that I thought could illustrate this. Not that it's a not that we're trying to teach any doctrine from the hymn book, but I think the thought is there. Humbled for a season to receive a name from the lips of sinners unto whom he came. Faithfully he bore it, spotless to the last, brought it back victorious when from death he passed. Bore it up triumphant with his human light, through all ranks of creatures to the central height, to the throne of Godhead, to the Father's breast, filled it with the glory of that perfect rest. And the supreme exaltation of the Lord Jesus, the glorified man in heaven. The reason God has done that is given to us in verse 10. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Of things in heaven, and things in earth, and things under the earth. This is not uh, a genuflection, you know, you just bow your head and wave your hand and that's it. That's not what is being talked of here. This is not even a down on one knee, a quickie. This is a full bowing to the person and work 
of the Lord Jesus. Whether willing or unwilling, because every creature will bow. Every creature in heaven, every creature on earth, and every creature beneath the earth. Celestial, terrestrial, and infernal, all must and will bow in complete submission. But not just bow. Verse 11, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I think it's interesting. Jesus Christ is Lord. It's not even an acknowledgement that He is God. It's an acknowledgement that He's Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. There won't be any sullen silences or clenched teeth and refusal to speak. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that is the place to which God has exalted His beloved Son. And it all started with that simple self-humbling of the Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord. So from that, let's go back for a moment to verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He disregarded what was due to him as God. And instead he accepted what was due to us as sinners. The ultimate result of his actions was and will be glory to God, the Father. Suppose I were to disregard what I think is my due. Suppose I should lay aside my estimate of myself and simply disregard that and accept what God brings to me. Suppose you did that. What would be the result? Honor to the Lord Jesus. Glory to God the Father. Glory to the triune God. I will never know that. Until we take the low place, willingly. We abandon our rights, our preferences, and our dignity and receive what God gives us with His own hand. And I remind you of the words of the Lord Jesus in John chapter 18. The cup which my Father hath given me shall I not drink it. Trust that God would bless His word. Let's pray.